And welcome to episode 21 of the Outside Centre Film Podcast, where we look at films that we think nobody else is really talking about all that much, without ignoring things that people are actually talking about that much. We've got a couple of those this week. We've also got uh, Floating Skyscrapers and The King and the Mockingbird, uh, amongst a couple of uh, one American film and one British film we'll be talking about shortly. We'll also be looking back at Michael Haneke's career. Thankfully, he's not dead yet, Paul, but he's 72. Uh, so it's just a matter of time. It's just really. a matter of time with this podcast history, but he's got a new, new new film coming out next year, or at the very very latest two years, because he's waiting on a certain actress before he starts filming. Um, so I thought we'd look look back at his career. We're both fans of his. Yep. And we're going to split it into three parts. You'll hear the other two parts at different uh, on different episodes of the podcast. But today we're going to start with his first four feature films. Uh, but before we get to any of that, of course, it's news, Paul. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got some news. I've got. I'm going to kick things off this week. Tell us with uh, with the news that Toy Story Four was announced mm-hmm. uh, for release in uh, 2017, directed by John Lasseter, who directed the original one, amongst the Bugs Life and Cars and Cars Two. Now, I think this is a, biz- a bizarre but understandable decision because, in, in terms of business, it was announced at the Pixar investors meeting. Now, uh, Toy Story Three was. And in fact, all the Toy Stories have grossed remarkably well. Indeed. None of them as much as Frozen, but we won't go into that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But they've made lots of money for Pixar, more than any of the others put together. So I think clearly, if you're going to announce one like that, you're going to do it. They've also got a couple of original IPs coming out over the next few years, none of which you can guarantee will gross. Mm -hmm. So purely in terms of business, which we talked about last week with Paddington, then, you know, it makes sense. But I'm not really here to talk about the Pixar business thing. I'm talking about the logic of the decision. Everything about it. The third film, which I thought was an absolute masterpiece, mm-hmm. much, much better than the second one. I I like the first one a lot, but the second one I just couldn't get on with. But the third one ended with definitive closure. <laughs> you know, the movie was about growing up and moving on. All the toys had their new home with a new family. So how do you go from that? Well, with the new family, one presumes. Well. So uh, that, to me, would be the logic of it. But that was a perfect ending for me. Bearing in mind that they kind of said, when that came out, that's it for Toy Story. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a very... People got very, very emotional about that fact, but the film stood up for that reason. And then John Lasseter comes out with his quote uh, when this news was announced, where he says, we only make sequels when we have a story that's as good or better than the original. So Cars 2 really worked out well for them, didn't it, John Lasseter? <laughs> but, um, but it made a lot of money. It, it made more money, but they, even, they, even they admit it didn't go the way they wanted it to. And certainly, clearly they can't just... They also look at their own performances amongst the animation because he, he's actually been an executive, an executive producer on pretty much most of them, mm. including, might I add, Frozen, which yes. isn't even a Pixar production. Um, so he's... I'm kind of attacking this from all sorts of different angles at once, really. I'm not happy about it coming back, or the reasons for it coming back, and I'm not happy that he's directing it. Even though he's done the others, He's hasn't directed anything since Toy Story 3. Plus, you're talking about potentially, because Toy Story 1 came out... A long time ago. A long time ago, so you've got a whole new generation going to the cinema to see... Uh, possibly for the first time. So yeah. you could actually see it as almost being a loop to bring you back to the first one. Uh, so that, And again, it is about marketing. It's getting new audience, new yeah. children. Because like, all those people who saw it when they were 8, 12, 13, they're now parents with children who are who in 17 will be 3 or 4. So it, you can see that kind of demographic logic to it. But equally, I think, I think Toy Story is so good, and I've enjoyed all three. That I'm, yeah, I'm quite looking forward to it, you know. So uh, give it a go. Anything with Wallace Shawn in, who's the... Indeed. Uh, it's got to be welcome. And so. John Rassenberger. Welcome him back to any film. Well, uh, I, I uh, presume uh, it's his career. He's the only one who's in everything. Uh, that's he? right, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I, it's just... I know what Pixar... Are, you know, most of us do. I'm not going to pretend, of course. But most of us all know what Pixar are capable of when they do something totally original. Mm. And the man who is for that, it seems to me, is Mr. Andrew Stanton, who's got Inside Out, which is coming out next year. And the the teaser trails have been going out where they're introducing you to all the little characters that will appear in Inside Out. I have no doubts that will be a bona fide masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Because he's doing it. He's shown that he can do it with Up. 
and the Incredibles. So he is the man for that. And if Lassiter is therefore the man that just comes, goes back to the old ones and redoes those again, fine. But give me a choice, honestly. If I was held, at, if I was held on a stool, the light shining on me, and I was forced to choose between another Toy Story film or a new original IP from Pixar, I would go for a new one. I wouldn't, because I think uh, particularly if someone had it had turned out to be Cars or Cars One and Two or any of those kind of. Really crappy one. Cars was Cars was acceptable. It was the fact that Cars yeah. Two came out. Yeah, Cars that... One was shit, and Cars Two was shit. I thought. <laughs> I thought. Well, never mind. Cars <laughs> is Cars is not up there. I think but it's Ca- a Cars lot... is the one that was. It was Paul Newman's last thing, wasn't it? He was that's one, right. You know, that's a sad way to go out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a tragic way to go out. So. Well, that, well, that one broke. That one broke the trend with uh, celebrity voices. It actually really got them in for the first time in a long time, and it was it was Owen Wilson, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, I, I'm not saying. Believe me, I'm not saying it's a masterpiece. But I would put I would put Cars One above anything that DreamWorks have done for the yeah. past ten years. Okay. <laughs> That's saying an awful lot. But anyway, we're getting distracted with this. Toy Story Four will be out in 2017. We yet to know much more about it apart from that. Apart from it's going to be a love story, so let's just see what happens with that. I'm, I'm not. Oh, afraid. now you've added that. I'm less less sure. Of yeah, to see it. Uh, and it came up, came apart in a meeting. Apparently, not just at the investors' meeting. This idea. Uh, Andrew Stanton was also involved with this, which concerns me somewhat because I don't want him to lower himself to John Lasseter's level. But um, Lasseter, ba- Lasseter, ba- <laughs> Lasseter basically said. Uh, we had we, we, we were talking amongst ourselves, and we had an idea that we just had to go ahead with. And, you know, if that genuinely was how this film was born out, I would accept, but I, I really do think it is because of the reason that you've said and the reason that I've said. You really need an investors meeting. You need some guaranteed... You need a guaranteed success going forward. Bearing in mind, you're also doing a, a new Finding Nemo, but not about Nemo, mm-hmm. about the bluefish that just talked far too much and was incredibly annoying. So that's going to alienate people. Yeah, that uh, was a big celebrity voice. Yeah, well, wasn't and it's it, just so. that's going to. Uh, was it Ellen did it? Did it Ellen well, DeGeneres did Will that. Smith hasn't had a big hit for a while, so no. <laughs> I, I just thought the idea of that. I don't know. But anyway, that's my news. You've got. A, we've had we've had another death on the podcast. It's actually been a while since we've had one. <laughs> so uh, go on, tell us about Mike uh, Nichols who's passed away. Yeah, Mike Nichols has passed away. I think he was eighty odd. He'd had a heart attack a few years ago. He's. He's he's known as the great American director. Bizarrely, he's actually a German, which I hadn't realised till looking him up. He, his father was a German as well. They left because of the Holocaust and all that kind of yeah. The usual the usual route there, not not to diminish it, but etc. And it, and again, it's quite interesting looking through him because he's come out of theatre and he came out of comedy as well. And I think that's where a lot of his legend is built on because if you look through his filmography, a it's not particularly long, given that he's been making films for forty years. He's done under 20 films, which is quite odd given the, the nature of him. But he has made some classics. And again, I, I must admit, I'm not a big fan of Mike Nichols. I, th- I don't quite hold him in the esteem that everybody else does. He's made some good films. But I would argue that's because he had quality material yeah. put in front of him. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, he's made a lot of duffers as well. <laughs> which, given that you're only making one film every two years, is inexcusable. I think... And equally, there's some classics in there that I think are the most awful drivel. Uh, Working Girl. Have you ever seen Working Girl? I'm looking at this list, Paul, and I can I can swear that I've not seen any of them. And but there's Working Girl, Post Fuzz from the Edge, Regarding Henry, uh, awful films. The Birdcage is a kind of American. The Graduate's rather popular, isn't it? Again, The Graduate is very popular again, but he, it, bizarrely, he didn't get the actor or the actress he wanted, and he ended up with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft. And there why it's a success. So, and that's quite interesting. He was lucky to start with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was a, a Burton Taylor kind of fight fest that worked around. And Catch-22, the great American post-war novel. Plus he tapped in, I think some critics have said he tapped into the zeitgeist of the decade each time. I think that that was more luck than judgment. Mm. Uh, the, what I would say about him is that he used to do comedy with a, with a woman called Elaine May, who is still knocking about. And she's only ever directed four films. And her, her last film was called Ishtar, which was the most expensive flop of all time <laughs> with Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. And I would say, look at her filmography, her four films, 
and they're much better. That's Ishtar, Mickey and Nikki, The Heartbreak Kid and A New Leaf. And if you get the opportunity to see A New Leaf, she actually acts in it as well. It's, it's a 1971 Walter Matthau film. Uh, and it, her four are much better than his 20. And uh, so... And I'm sure he was a great comic when he worked with her, and I'm sure a lot of his theatre stuff is excellent, but actually, most of his films are in, not overrated. They're enjoyable to watch on the television, but nothing that puts him up with, to me, the great directors of Houston and all of those directors. So it's a sad loss, because he did make interesting films, and films you usually watch, they've got a big name, good cast, good writer, but nothing more than that. But, I know, another one bites the dust, so... There we go. And uh, before we move on to our reviews this week, uh, bearing in mind that I've not seen any any of either Mike or Elaine, and I have no desire to, <laughs> mainly because I don't give a fuck about your opinions. You're like a new leaf. Uh, out of the Mike Nichols one, uh, out of his list, if you were to force me to what, if you were to sit me down and say, you watch this and see what you think of it, either for good or bad reasons, let's mm. be honest, because that's mm. what we like to do on this podcast as well, which one would you pull me towards? Well, I would say Catch-22, because I think it's such a great novel that it, and, and it's got an amazing cast and it's just wacky uh, and it's of its era. So I would say Catch-22. Uh, or Carnal Knowledge, but Carnal Knowledge is a very odd film and it's very famous for having Art Garfunkel in it. And uh, so it is a bit, a bit odd. A bit odd, yes. But again, Catch-22 is the one I would go for. And of the more modern ones... That you, might, you must have seen Charlie Wilson's War, which is a Tom Hanks one. But I've not sat through it because I don't But again, really, yeah. overrated. But they all are, really. That's a terrible thing to say because I thought, oh, I like Mike Nichols. But actually... You don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I shall take your advice and put it straight in the bin since I don't really care. Elaine May, a new leaf. I'll get, get that one. There we are. Or not. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on to this week's reviews then. <laughs> you know I respect your opinion so much. I know. Oh, you know that. Everybody else does mine now as well. Uh, so, starting off with this week's um, uh, quadruple of a film review, starting with the Polish film Floating, Skyscra- Floating Skyscrapers, rather, uh, which follows Kuba, an aspiring professional swimmer who falls in love with another man to the disapproval of his mother and to the surprise of his girlfriend, who tries to hold on to him and make their relationship work regardless. I can imagine this being an absolute masterpiece in Poland, Paul. Mm-hmm. I really, so can I. I really, really can. Pushing the boundaries. Indeed, on a subject which we'll come into on. Clearly, it's we are quite open in this society, whereas at least in Europe it is not. And, yep. and in fact, Scandinavia it is not, which brings me on to something else I'll mention in a moment. Um, and I can't deny, watching this, I thought, this is a quality product. I sat through it and I did enjoy it and I would recommend it. But it's missing a few too many things for me to call it a masterpiece for me. Mm. But I did enjoy watching it. But the problems are too great for me to sit here and say anything better. The first problem I found was that Kuba was strong enough to abandon his training. His swimming training, his swimming career. He was one of the best at it in that age range. He would have been a superstar. Absolutely. A swimming superstar if he would have carried on. He was so strong-willed to abandon that for this gay relationship, knowing full well that he couldn't have both. Yet, towards the end of the film, he was so incredibly weak and incredibly naive the fact that he was still living with his mother at that age as well. The fact that, again, we've, well, we've seen this in Fill the Void, as you bring a baby into the situation and everybody just goes to pot. Everybody just turns into a, a quivering wreck. And that, I did not, I did not like seeing this, in that in this film again. Uh, the relationship between the two, actually, the, the two boys, we don't actually know how old they were. And I think you needed that because when the, there were prancing about together, going on trains and hanging off the back of train carriages and screaming like girls. I thought, <laughs> I thought you've got this strange juxtaposition of this very serious swimmer. Both of them are swimmers, we should add. Mm. Very serious sporting professional, semi-professional people mixed with hanging off train carriages and screaming and things, which is totally bizarre. I didn't quite, there needs to be more character development for me to kind of get they truly loved each other. And there are just a few too many utterly pointless scenes, and I'm sure you can. You, I'm sure you'll be thinking of one that, the same one that I'm thinking of, the ones that are in the multi-story car parks, driving round and around and around, with some hipster music on the radio. Like I mean, again, I'm sure this was a very cinematic thing to do. We see it all the time in Hollywood, but it didn't really fit 
this, and I'm sure it represents some bullshit that you'll come and revolt to me in a moment, but I just didn't think it worked. <laughs> I didn't think it worked. But, having said that, the, we've mentioned it already, this subject in Eastern Europe is without doubt still taboo. And it's a Polish film, so that's in Eastern Europe, as we know. I thought the tone was excellent, generally speaking, aside from those little quibbles I've got. I like the style of it, and I like the tone of it. There's a lot of silence, apart from that bullshit music driving around. Because, of course, Eastern Europe's a less open society. We know all that. Mm-hmm. And that was presented very well. It was films made by people in their country representing what their country is all about. And that is what I like from foreign language films. And I'm, I'm quite impressed to see that Thomas <laughs> Woshinewski, this is his first film. And this gives me hope that we have... <laughs> this gives me hope that there's a... There's something maybe slightly more consistent that could come out of his hands and his eyes in the future. But I would recommend it because I did quite enjoy it. How did you get on with this? It's okay. <laughs> uh, I think it, what it reminds me of is British films of 20 years ago. <laughs> there, there was quite a lot of kind of like... Without the can- in fact, no, I'm going to say without the council flat, but they actually do live in a council <laughs> they flat. They do, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. There was, there was one with Robbie Coltrane in Brighton that I saw in about 1985 that this was very reminiscent of. It, it, it's okay. I think it, 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 it's quite cliched. I think you've got yep. the, the tragic gay story you know which usually means one lives one dies and it's not terrible and this doesn't really transcend that it was okayly directed i didn't mind the going around uh car parks i'm sure again i'm sure like you say it's significant that you know poland is full of multi-story car parks and you don't go up on the top floor because you don't know what's happening up there but uh so it was just dull it was it was adequately directed and again i think you can let it off on so many things because it was his first film. He wrote it, he directed it, but it, but it didn't it didn't push anything. And I no. think I've seen Eastern European movies about uh, being gay. There are a lot more yeah, yeah. Movies, a lot more uh, pushing the boundaries, a lot more transcending. But it was just too slow. There was lots of silence, lots of things. It didn't really engage with the family issues in any way that indicated true problems within the family about him being gay that i think he's terribly worried about his father and his father comes up to him and just stands by next to him and said you used to look at skyscrapers and say they were floating and again i'm sure it's highly meaningful but there was so much fear and terror in it that wasn't bore out by the rest of the film i i i I completely agree and also i think most of this is because as we've said it's a first timer yeah I so this, was... this could be an incredibly personal thing for him. It could be. And it probably is. Mm-hmm. So to that end, as I say, I'm willing to forgive some, some of you. But it was well acted. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it, it, uh, it, it was a bit long. It was one, one hour, two hours, two. Uh, but it was well, it, and it was quite well directed, you know. But it just needed more pizzazz. I think, like a lot of films about uh, being gay... Women are not portrayed particularly well. No. Uh, and I think, again, that was a, a weakness for the film. The The girlfriend and his mother are, are awful characters and have no depth. So you have none of their anxieties and fears but coming across too much. Isn't that, is, I, I actually think that works because they kind of represent what outer society thinks about being gay in Poland. Complete ignorance, brush it under the carpet, here's a baby, get on with it. To some extent, although equally I think you could have had a bit of ambiguity about the fear of failing at swimming because that was as a poor family's way. You're not a footballer, it's a way out of poverty and and out of council house living. So, But again, it it needed a bit more depth and a bit more pace. Uh, But, you know, like you say, first time. And I'd probably say my film of the week. Dear me. Yes. <laughs> well then, what on earth do you say to that? Fill with a list. <laughs> I've got a companion piece for you. I think this sits quite interesting next to what well, came bloody close to being my film of last year, and we've mentioned it a few times on the podcast already, She Monkeys. But I think She Monkeys has got a depth and intelligence Absolutely. that this doesn't. And that was from a female first-timer. Yeah. Now, She Monkeys... Uh, that's about the, more about the pressure to conform. This yep. has a little bit of that, but that's mostly about. It's also about media influence, yeah. culture, sexualization, and things like that. 
And that, very personally, is about a lack of a mother and a father figure. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about this character is that he has both. And yet, obviously, it still ha- he still has issues with coming out and that kind of thing. I would personally say, we, well, we'd, I think we'd both recommend this with caution. Mm-hmm. But I think we'd also say that She-Monkers is better. Much. And I think, actually, if you want to watch a film about, uh, you know, clearly about sexualisation and being gay in a, in a country that's not comfortable with it still... She Monkeys is the one, yeah, and that well, but for that film to bring me to She Monkeys mm. is a good thing. Mm. So I, I salute again. I salute Thomas for that, and I will, I will watch his next one. Hopefully, it's a little bit better. As I said, film of the podcast for Indeed, me. Right. <laughs> well, on that cheerful note, let's move on to a, 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 little, a little slice of Hollywood, Paul. Yes, to, to an extent, anyway. A most wanted man. Yes, this is basically Philip Seymour Hoffman's one last film. Yeah, but that he last complete film, last complete film that he completed. Uh, it's about a, a kind of spy chief in Berlin who who is German, uh, in Hamburg rather, and they're after a Chechen Muslim illegal immigrant who they think is coming to bomb stuff because he wants money off of a banker. And then there's complications of like that the the spy chief that is Hoffman is actually trying to get the banker who's funding illegal terrorism through different ways. So it's a very conventional spy. It's from a John le Carre novel, uh, who actually appears in it very briefly if, oh. you, if you look very carefully. Uh, and it's got quite an amazing cast: it has, uh, yeah. Rachel McAdams, Daniel Brühl, Nina Hoss. Robin Wright, Willem Dafoe. I love Willem Dafoe. Yep. Uh, I think, you know, I'd just watch anything he's in. I'm having an increasing problem with Robin Wright, uh, the former Mrs. Sean Penn. So uh, every time, because I, I want to like her, and I think she's a great actress, but she just makes the most awful films, and this is one of them. I was a big fan of the Congress. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't, I and that's why no. I like it even more. Uh, it was a shame, and it suffered from a, the problem that a lot of films about being in another country are. <laughs> Half of the cast are putting on German accents. Indeed. Half are German, trying to speak English, and they've got German accents. And then lots of other people are just speaking <sighs> yeah. English, American, and it's like, who are pretending to be German? And it's kind of like, just don't do it. Go hard you know, or go home. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or just pretend everybody speaks English perfectly and get American actors in it or, or English actors. I thought it was pretty weak uh, <laughs> on every level. It, it lacked uh, intelligence, insight, sophistication, any ambiguity in it particularly. Because it turns out the illegal immigrant isn't this bad guy that they're all fearful. Oh, He's actually an, a, almost a saintly Muslim heroic figure. Uh, Get the tissues out. I feel very emotional. And and it's and it's kind of like a terror. It's a terribly bleak view of it as well. That has a complete and utter distrust of American intelligence services. Yeah. And again, that's probably absolutely fair. But it's kind of like give us a bit more than that. Uh, you know, they are the global peacemaker, or they think they are, and everybody's given that role. And I even Philip Seymour Hoffman was was a bit down in it which yeah. when you find out he tops himself seen after it's, it's quite logical really uh, so, I think he topped himself because he knew he was going to be in Hungry, Hungry Games <laughs> Mocking <Jack. laughs> so it, it it didn't particularly and I love spy films you do I do I really yeah, do I love spy films and I was deeply deeply it's too long it, it gets this bizarre. is a film that's two hours and two minutes the yeah. other one was an hour and a half just to put that one out that's right I read it wrong yeah. uh, so and it, it just gets too complicated and and too random and and it tried to not pay homage but almost copy a lot so they go down into a car park but it's really a spy place and it's kind of like do me a favour they're just all in office blocks now you don't need to hide anything <laughs> and it was just like oh god you know <laughs> uh, so uh, it was done by the guy who did Control the Joy Division film Indeed. in the American which wasn't too bad uh, well, ha- I haven't seen the American well, it's not too bad it's, no. it's a kind of so fairly, it's not too bad director yeah, all in all. yeah he's competent uh, but I, I think the screenplay must have been just been awful. And, and having Rachel McAdams pop up seems a bit odd as well. She should stick to her big Hollywood blockbusters and time traveller's wife. And again, I'm I'm a big fan of Daniel Brawl and I'm a big fan of Nina Hoss. She was in Barbara, uh, which yeah. was about East German. Excellent film. And and he, he played Nicky Lauder, Daniel Brawl. Yeah. Uh, and again, he's excellent. So stay away from America or, you know, just do it for the money. So Which I presume is what it was all about, but... Because it was just crap. It was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but the thing is, 
You, know, I think you knew that was coming because we talked about you loving spy films, and you know that I, they're one of my genres I could not care less about, <laughs> alongside Bollywood. Um, unfortunately, I didn't make it past fifteen minutes, Paul. Really? <laughs> and I, I have to say, this is not fi- even for Philip. Not even for Philip. Fifteen minutes of my life I'll never get back because this, for me, is an epitome of pointlessness. This is a bad film version of CSI. Any, or for that matter, any boring or stereotypical crime terrorist drama that's on TV. Might I call out the fact that the only thing that was missing from this film to make it even better, in inverted commas, was James Nesbitt, Noe, and his Northern Irish accent in the most inappropriate of places. Speaking of accents, Philip, Philip, Philip. I'm a huge fan, we know that, you love him as well. The German accent was atrocious. It was. It was a bad design choice. Just have Philip Seymour Hoffman do, just speaking normally. It doesn't do him any favours. It doesn't do the film any favours. And Willem Dafoe hardly bothered. He slipped into an accent every now and then in a sentence, <laughs> yeah. which was just... Oh. Now, we mentioned already, this is a John Le Carwash novel. Now, I don't mind John Le Carwash. He's OK. Mm. Um... I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a books fan. <laughs> don't have that nickname as the fact that I don't like the guy. I don't. I'm not a fan of. I don't read books. But I liked a lot the Constant Gardener. I was a big fan of that film. Actually, it really, really impressed me. I felt in that film the dynamism, the passion, and the genuine love to get that story told about being in Africa and about corporate bindings and all that kind of thing in Africa in African society. Really, really well made film. I enjoyed it. This, for me, just felt like another terrorist film. Mm. Or, as I've said already, another stereotypical crime terrorist drama from BBC One. So, this did well at Sundance. Which, again, I'm not surprised I didn't like this film. And it doesn't surprise me this film did well at Sundance Film Festival. Because it's, you know, a Sundance Film Festival film. I dislike Sundance Film Festival. (laughs) It's full of films like this that are alright to look at, full of stars, but are complete shit. Mm. And this ticks all the Sundance boxes. <laughs> totally unoriginal composition with an uninteresting ex- with an uninteresting execution. Please go away, a most wanted man. Absolutely. Should we move on then? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so we won't recommend that. Northern Soul, Paul. Let's get back to Britain. Northern Soul. Right. Set in 1974, it describes itself as an authentic and uplifting <laughs> tale of two friends whose horizons are opened by the discovery of black American soul music. So basically, Northern Soul. And they travel between Stoke Wigan. and Wigan. You've got a reason ticket, season ticket. I have got a week with season Wigan ticket, yes. And, uh, <laughs> not for much longer, probably, given their <laughs> recent behaviour. But it, And so it's about and the council house people, again. Uh, so they, they work in a factory. <laughs> council house people, again. <laughs> again, yes. And when I say council, it's kind of like, and this is at the core of what this is. Indeed. It's affluent, middle-class people's view of what council house people are like. And what they did. Yeah, and it bears no relationship to reality. If you're going to watch Northern Soul, to, if you, because you like Northern Soul music, don't bother. Uh, this was the biggest piece of shit I have seen <laughs> for ages. If we were doing worse films of the year, this is up there. And I, I, I went to the cinema for this. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so Ricky Ricky Tomlinson yeah, is kind of like yeah. the chirpy granddad who's who's <laughs> <Who> dies. <laughs> put, he's put in a home and then they forget about him. And he dies. It's kind of like that's all right. He's gone. Lisa Stanfield, and you just want to keep you know sing sing you know don't 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 make films. And Steve Coogan is the teacher, oh, uh, who's this kind of like bad English version of Brian Glover out of Kez, English teacher kind of equivalent. It is it is irredeemably bad. It's miserable. It's tatty. It's scrappy. It's badly directed. It's badly written. It's incoherent. You, what the fucking point of this film was, is is baffling utterly and totally baffling and i think it disappeared without trace and it was rightly so there was nothing good about it the the nightclub scenes uh, wigan casino and, and the other ones dreadful 
It has no love of the music. It has no love of the people. There is no comedy in it. It's full of cliched northerners pill popping and swearing, at, swearing at each other, swearing all the time. and trying a bit of shag. It thinks it was exploring racial issues of the seventies. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, through kind of like the the main guy fancying uh, a black girl, nurse, etc. And so there is absolutely nothing worth mentioning. Most films are too long. This was too long. Uh, one, uh, one oh two minutes. One forty. That's it. One hour 40. And it was just. I, I was. It made me never want to go to the cinema again. Actually, when I left. So that, that's quite something. Absolutely. I actually disagree with the most things that you said. <laughs> but I understand. Actually, don't, don't, again, don't get me wrong. This is a car syndrome again. This is not Bony Man's masterpiece. On the front of the DVD, mm. there's a quote from Ian Brown from the Stone Roses. Who, which again is pretty much a sign of this film thing tanked, and I can understand why. But also on the front of the DVD, it says, If you were there, you'll know. If you weren't, you'd wish you had been. <laughs> now, clearly, this doesn't apply to you, but from my perspective on this, not my era, I was an 80s child, so this is beyond me. Does this film make me wish I was in the Northern Soul scene? And I have to say, it does. It does. It does. Because there's lots of music in it, and I'm a music buff, and I love music films. I love music documentaries about films. Albeit, I'm not going to watch the stuff on BBC Four about country music. I'm not that desperate. Who would? Who would? Uh, especially if you've seen the trails for it. Um, but I actually think the nightclub scenes were actually well made. Just the nightclub scenes. <laughs> I like the dancing. The dancing was good. I thought the dancing was good in it because they've actually made the effort to train these people to do it properly. They actually, a lot of the kids that were doing it were trained for two years. They were hiring for two years and training them for two years to get them to do the authentic Northern Soul dancing. And they pulled it off well. Two characters I liked. I particularly liked the black girl, as you mentioned her, actually. I actually think she's the best actress in the film. Totally. I think, she, I think she's superb. I also like James Bance, who plays the, uh, the legendary Northern Soul DJ who travelled around to these places. I can't remember his name. The way he smoked a cigar was quite authentic. Quite, I'm clutching at straws here. You are clutching because this is my second favorite film of the week, probably. Uh, <laughs> um, but you've mentioned Tomlinson and you've mentioned Steve Coogan, and that's pretty much all the all the good things I've got to say about it. Because this film does, I completely agree, represent exactly what is wrong with British cinema and yep. why I am not a British cinema fan. Having to have household actors and actresses in it to evoke nostalgia or to represent nostalgia like this. Steve Coogan is absolutely awful in this. As the teacher, he looks completely uncomfortable doing it. He doesn't come across in any way like a teacher that... Well, you're you're nearer towards having teachers in the 70s than I have. Indeed. He just looks like an awful representation. Ricky Tomlinson, again, is a pointless character in this film with a pointless acting performance. And John Thompson, who's the worst of them all, from Cold Feet. James knows a bit noy and all that. Yeah, Cold Feet, I respect. But John Thompson, I won't respect. I've even wiped John Thompson out. Because he, well, he was awful in this film as the... As the pop DJ who got jealous about these young kids invading his... not Oh, his, in the day centre. At the day centre, because he wanted to play, Club, ch- he it. wanted to play chart tunes. Yeah, and, and basically all he kept saying was, "No, I quite like my pop, ch- I put my pop tunes really. I quite like my pop tunes really." That was that was his role in the film. Yeah. He was awful in it. So the fact that British cinema has to have these, you know, the the, the new kids on the block, the main two actors, yeah, I didn't mind them. The black girl, the black actress, she was my favourite out of anybody. The newer people are by far and away the better people in this film than the older people. And yet British cinema must have these old guys and old women in it. And it really, really annoys me. One of the things, pointless, needless, swearing all the time. Um, but that said, I did enjoy the nightclub scenes. But it's I, interesting you say it was full of music. It wasn't full it of wasn't, music. It wasn't, no, I, I didn't say it was full of music. I and just I, enjoyed the nightclub scenes there where was, there was music. But there was so little of that. And that, again, and I thought, there if, was probably, if you were there, you will hate this. Uh, so I've read... Yeah. A lot of people have complained about the when I, when I was there we weren't doing drugs, but and to an extent that is true because I've, I've spoken to people who were there. But what they did what they did show quite well in this film were the poppers. Now the poppers were 
that weren't necessarily bad for you, the multicoloured ones that just yep. kept you dancing all night. They did that very, very well, and they had a nice little thing of being chased by the police with a bag, with a carry bag full of multicoloured poppers. That scene was all right. It was the heroin thing. That wasn't really a thing that took place during the Northern Soul period, and I've spoken to people from that period, so I can yeah. say that. That, in a way... I can't quite understand Elaine Constantine's idea for bringing that side into it. Yeah. Was it because it's the working class thing that she felt she was representing by having that in there? She could she could have done without it, and it would still have been a poor representation of the working class. Yep. So for her to have it in made it worse. So I don't think either of us would necessarily recommend it. I would. You definitely I would wouldn't. Say clearly, cl- you clearly wouldn't. And I'm not going to disagree with you too much. It's just that I did. I did manage to extrapolate a few things just to make it. Better than what truly was 15 minutes of awful cinema from the previous film we talked about. Yep. Um, so there we go. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Which to my to my film of the week. Your film of the week. My film of the week. The King of the Mockingbird. A long and, and before I say before we go into this, I'm just going to apologise because I know I know how incredibly annoying it is to all of you listening, and and I feel about I feel like this with, with Lars von Trier. To be honest, I feel incredibly personal about Lars von Trier. I don't like sharing him out with anybody. I fe- or even Hanukkah for that reason although Hanukkah's a little bit more um, popular a little bit being the operative word um, which we'll talk about in a moment but this is an animation film that has famously been hard to track down mm-hmm. and only real animation buffs were ever able to get a copy of it those that did wax lyrical about it and to those people obviously who found it for, who feel ownership to this film I want to apologise because I'm going to do what I absolutely hate people doing to me. And I'm going to wax lyrical about this as if I found it, although I didn't. It's, it's come out just lit for the first time this year, earlier on this year, legally. It's been re-released, remastered, put together and all the rest of it on the DVD. A long lost but recently released French animation film from the 1980s in the kingdom of tachycardia ranks King Charles V plus three, making eight plus eight, making 14. <laughs> Which is actually the name of the character. One night, his paintings come to life, which includes the king's own portrait and a shepherdess and a good-for-nothing, good-for-nothing-at-all, again, that's the name of the character, chimney sweep, who are all in love. They escape romantically off into the night, leaving the king's own portrait to dispose the real king and, in a jealous rage, use his authority to seek out and capture the romantic couple so he can have the shepherdess for himself. I actually think it was an absolute masterpiece, Paul. I absolutely loved it. It's a film teeming with life, which, having, as we have, we've seen likes of Frozen, and you making me watch that bloody vacuous Danish university project film as well. This is teeming with life, even though there's hardly anything on screen at any point. Space, luxurious kingdom with great depth. You see vast, tall buildings in the distance, and then a sky of nothingness. And in fact, most of the city is barren, but it works brilliantly. It looks so interesting that everything is so tall and in great detail on it for the 1980s. Although it's quite curious that this style actually goes back to the much, much earlier uh, Disney films, mm-hmm. who, which did this kind of style. But it is slightly different. We'll go into that in a minute. Uh, one of my favourite things about this film, and, and believe me, this is going on to my personal list for nominations for Film of the Year, because this fits the criteria. It's come out this year, so therefore we can do it. Uh, the music was absolutely excellent. It used the whole range of the orchestra, a whole range of it, and it sets the it sets an appropriate mood. For example, for regalness, there was obviously lots of trumpets and that kind of thing, and it set the mood more than any bullshit pop song that Frozen's done or any modern animated film tries to do. You know what I'm talking about. When they come out with those bloody songs that are in the, in, for example, like a Shark's Tale when they re-release things like bring back old songs and like jazz them up using younger singers, I absolutely it detracts from me. Whereas this orchestral thing, and indeed, of course, we know from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and films of that ilk, they also did the same thing. Music like that just works for me. So little dialogue between the characters, which I like as well. You know, I hate too much talking in animated films. Absolutely hate it. And the character development was there from the off. I liked the characters. I loved the doppelganger king. I thought he was dislikable. But in a good way. Not for you to put off watching the rest of the film, or at least for me. But I thought he he was intriguing to watch. He had necessary evilness. And I liked the actual real king, who flitted between, again, being evil, 
and been quite nice. I, the, the actual, in terms of the technical animation, the scene when the real king smashed his own mirror because he was so upset about how, how ugly he was, that was a brilliantly executed piece of animated film. I loved how he smashed the mirror, to, just for one example. The general tone, tone's very important for animated films for me, which is why we talked about The Illusionist in the past and how much we both love the tone of that. Quietness, isolation, vacuousness, but not boring for me. Nails it completely. There's a lot in this film, and I'm going to save a lot of it for when I come back for a second go, but this is by far the best animated film I've seen this year, which probably says an awful lot about the stuff we've actually seen this year, but... I love this. Well, I'll start by saying that, uh, you, you know, talking about Frozen, you could have an animation of a steaming turd with steam coming off it. Indeed. Like four hours with whistling by a deaf person, and it would be better than that. As the music... I, I didn't particularly like this, because I didn't think it, it passed the test of time particularly well. It, plus, it annoyed me that its title is quite elusive. I think IMDb calls it the King and the Mister Bird. Uh, lots of others call it the King and the Mockingbird. In French, it's called Le Roi et l'Oiseau, which is the King and the Bird. So uh, that annoyed me from the start. I'm not a big fairy tale fan. I tend not to like quest and fairy tales, and those two are very closely linked. Mm-hmm. But we should say before you came on, so this is actually. Based on the story of Hans Christian Andersen. Absolutely. So I forgot to say that. So that's where the fairy tale comes into yes. it. There you go. Yeah. So, so, there you so go. I do have a bit of problem with yeah, fairy yeah, tales. Yeah, yeah. I never fine. read them and I, I, just, I just hate fairy tales. Uh, but I think it is, it is very reminiscent of quality Disney from the 40s and 50s. Yep. Uh, and the style of drawing is simple yet clear. And, and I quite like that. It's a bit too long. I think an hour would have been perfect a little bit snappy a little bit more pacey but i thought what was excellent about it was actually what it means yeah and i think it's an incredible political animation within the fairy tale kind of scenario and and i love that and i thought that worked very well you know modernism uh, metropolitanism uh, monarchy versus republicanism Poverty. Uh, There's a of, lot of racism in there. Absolutely, in, racism. Class, and of course, big, big at the forefront is the class system. Yep. The fact that he's a good for nothing, good for nothing chimney sweep. And I like the idea that you had the two kings, and it was almost yeah. saying there is no such thing as a good king. All kings are bad, yeah. and that you need to demolish that system. And so it had a little problems with technology, but then it sort of veered on the side of using technology to destroy the existing order. So I think given that it was made in, in 1980, so it's probably been developed in fundamentally the 70s, a highly political era. Cold War. Indeed, Cold War, but equally, uh, you know, the edge of revolution all across Europe and France being the highly politicised country that it is. That was the best bit about it, but it was too long. It was a little bit sentimental. Uh, I disagree, but 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 it was uh, it was okay. Uh, I think it wasn't quite as good as floating skyscrapers, partly because it didn't stand the test of time for me, and it but, had too many of those fairy tale things. And equally, because if you've seen like the Iron Giant, yeah, uh, and there's a, the Iron Giant is in it. I think this is better than that. It is, yeah. it is. But again, you, you kept thinking, oh, the Iron Giant. And there's lots of things that you've seen since that distracted from it. But this came before the Iron Giant. Absolutely. Uh, but again, that's very difficult to see it as before because you've got all that history after it that, that, uh, that I've absorbed, absorbed and, and you've absorbed. So, but it's good, you know, and I would recommend it. I think it'll probably bore the living daylights out of teenagers unless you have a discussion with them and get them to think about what it's saying. But I think, young, I think you younger do, people I, and adults I think you do will enjoy it. I think the middle group, it probably, who've grown up on Toy Story, uh, what was the last big animation? Or even like Mulan and that. And they're, they're quite vacuous, but they're pacey, fast. Mm. Uh, and this, one could not accuse this. And it's, I like the humour in it. Again, I would like a little bit more of that, a little bit more pace. I, I, I agree... This won't be for everybody, but this is for animation buffs, which I consider myself one, uh, and I'm sure you maybe consider yourself one as well. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I, 
I, mm, in terms of what's in it, I mean, it, it, it is packed full of stuff. It, it, it's, it's an intellectual film. There's no two ways about it. It is full of stuff. I mean, for me, it is predominantly a film about the Cold War. You actually do see an Iron Fist. Yep. Crashing scenery at the end. You see a lot of a lot of button pushing throughout the film. Uh, red buttons as well, I might add. A lot of tannoy announcements. A lot of tannoy sirens. Mm. Yeah, and that all relates to that. Did I also be, it also goes into the fact that the revolution as well. The urbanisation of agriculture. There are no trees in this film. Yep. And you realise that fairly early on. Everything is either concrete or sky. There, are, there is nothing in between. The destructive nature of man, generally speaking, of course, fits into the revolution as well. Um, I, get, you know, I get the feeling that this... It manages to do what an awful lot of films don't do and present ideas to them without it actually being pretentious to us or to anybody. It is so very, very in, well-made and intellectually done that you know it's about this. You don't have to go searching for things. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. Hanukkah does exactly the same thing we'll talk about. Well, I think it's he interesting. If present you... things to people, let them come up, with, let, let them come up with their own ideas about whether they like it, dislike it, agree with it, disagree with it. But if you present ideas, there is nothing better. I like nothing better than having a director say to me, "I want you to watch this film about what I want this film to be about." Mm. You deal with it. When you have to search for things beneath the surface, you know I'm not a fan of that. But sometimes you have to go so far beneath, you're basically you're abstracting things from the Earth's core that's so unrelated to what you just watched. This is very clearly a revolutionist film about that kind of thing, which is a biz- and the only thing the only thing I really take issue with what you've said is the fact it doesn't stand the test of time. It's not here for that reason. It's literally a long lost film for that reason. You're not supposed to compare it to the likes of Frozen. We're doing it because I liked it and I didn't like Frozen. But this is literally you just watch this animated old film because we finally have access. We finally give you access, legal access to this. Watch it. No, and I, and I appreciate that. Uh, but but I do think some animations, even old ones, for example, Pin- Pinocchio transcends time. Uh, and I think so, and this <sighs> yeah. does. But then, of course, we're into classic territory. Yeah, but, but I think what's interesting is to think about it in terms of, say, for example, a most wanted man. Well, a most wanted man is 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 a kind of cynic's view of the contemporary Cold War against Islam yeah. that we're in, mm-hmm. and the king and the Mister Bird or whatever you want to call it was is actually so. It's about the same thing, but about hope. And about the, yeah. the possibility of dreaming of a better future, which a most wanted man definitely doesn't have, and why, and it's at the core of its misery and why it's so awful, and why this is good is because it has that that notion of hope, and so I would recommend it. Uh, yeah. Uh, second film of the week. So, so I, th- I think we pretty much agree on most things this week which Absolutely. Is, which is quite scary let's see how we get on with Mark Hanukkah because we are both a fan of Mark Hanukkah mm-hmm. now he's done a whole bunch of TV movies have you managed to see any of these TV I, movies? I think I've seen f- which ones are we talking about? well any of the TV movies before no, his foot so there we go no, and, and the, if anybody has well done because I, I've not been able to find a copy of any of them but that didn't matter really because uh, we're just going to jump straight into Michael Hanukkah his yep. first feature film 1989 The Seventh Continent but before we do that what for, before you get into why you liked him, how you found him, I'm going to give a couple of quotes which perfectly represent him and why I like him. Michael Haneker says, My films are intended as polemical statements against the American barrel down cinema and its disempowerment of the spectator. They are an appeal for a cinema of insistent questions instead of false, because they're too quick, answers, or clarifying distance in place of violating closeness for provocation and dialogue instead of consumption and consensus. In other words, he's (laughs) anti-Hollywood. And he wants to make films that don't conform to the need to explain things with happy endings, resolutions at all points, etc. That's what that is. His second quote, which I love even more than that, is this. Consider the pigeon just a pigeon. In In a Michael Hanegger film, what you see is what you see. And as you know, that is what I like from films. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't mind going underneath. I like seeing things under the surface bubbling, rising to the top. I don't like to go any further than that. 
especially because unrelated to what's in front of your eyes. You never have to do that with Hanukkah because it is right in your face, presented in most of the time a miserable, very, very unpleasant, but thoroughly engaging way. So uh, take those two quotes and put them into his films that are, generally speaking, either based on something that has happened for a fact or something that is happening around the time that he made the film. And for me, Paul, you have got yourself one of the best directors in history. Mm-hmm. I agree. <clears throat> I agree. And I, I think what's interesting is is because it, 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 you'd watch his films and think he was a really miserable, cynical person. But he isn't. No. And I think he makes the films about these subjects, which are awful and miserable, because he doesn't like that. And he actually yeah. has a great degree of hope within him. Unlike A Most Wanted Man, which was built on cynicism and absolute commitment to cynicism. And so actually, Haneke's films are actually more depressing and more bleak and more miserable and with less hope. But they're made by someone, and it comes through it in every pore, that actually he thinks there can be a better world. And he's exploring these as a way of us seeing that and again i like the idea of not not patronizing the audience uh i think there is a lot of depth to them and it's oh, it's, a, it's a difficult one when he sits there saying you know what you see is what you get and like the pigeon is a pigeon the pigeon meant a lot even though the pigeon is a pigeon because it's both uh, and so i think he's probably the best european film director at the moment i would agree possibly above lars von tier because lars von tier gets a bit carried away with uh, having fun as much as we love him yeah, yes. indeed there's some <laughs> things you put in and you think ah oh, that's to shock us it doesn't bear any relationship no. to anything else you just try to shock us whereas with Hanukkah everything is absolute perfection and I think I think I've seen everything since uh, Funny Games and again it's interesting and if you really want to understand the difference watch the Funny Games Hollywood version and watch Hanukkah. Which is frame for frame the same, but with less good actors, surprise, surprise. And completely different in what it means, what they're saying, yeah. and how the American one glories in it, uh, uh, Hanukkah's doesn't, and and it's just it's just so different, despite the fact like being a frame for frame remake. So. Indeed. But let, let, we're going to focus on all those later ones later. In, 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 in later parts. Yeah. So we're going to start off in 1989 on the continent. This is the, this is the film that was based on truth. One of the ones that's based on something that actually happened. He read an article about a family, a middle-class family. She went to a nice school. The mother and the family had a good job as a dentist. He had a, he had a very good job. He just got promoted from his job and had even more money working in some sort of scientist lab things. It's a family that all of a sudden decided to kill themselves. Or rather, the parents decided to kill themselves and take their child along with her. Yeah. To the central plane, um, and the only re- and it, he read an article on this and thought, how utterly pointless! Why did it happen? Now most directors would have tried to explain what the reasons why it might have happened, because of course, no, the only people that knew were those and they're dead. But they did leave a suicide note that basically said, "We are going to do this. We're sorry." The the, the suicide note didn't explain. Why the family did it? Mm. Again, the only people that know it are the those that committed the deed. So again, most of us have said, right? What could it have done? Could it have been illness? Could it have been work was too hard and they got depressed? No. Hanukkah presented the mere facts of everyday life: the suicide, roll credits, and for the, this is actually his favourite film that he's made. He's come out and said that, and I can see why. Um, or that's not my personal favourite of his. That's to come. But it's a thoroughly engaging piece of cinema. In the sense that he, one of the Hanukkah traits, for those that don't know, is that he will show mundane scenes of normal, everyday things. And he'll re- repeatedly show them. Cars leaving a garage. Cars going back in the garage. A lot of eating scenes. Now, isn't it interesting how most films actually don't have eating scenes in? Mm-hmm. In any film. Because mm-hmm. it's seen as mundane. This, a lot of Hanukkah, well, Hanukkah's films have eating in them. Because it's all about engaging you with these real people, doing real things, real characters. One of the most controversy follows Hanukkah in every film that he's done. And funnily enough, considering the subject matter of this film, Paul, the one scene that Hanukkah got lambasted for was the fact that the family, um, real money, real shillings by the way, real German money, 
in amongst destroying all their possessions before they committed suicide because they felt the need to do that. They destroyed their house, their the fish tank. They put fish down the toilet. Nobody was bothered about that. But they also put 450,000 shillings down the toilet. And you actually see them put 450,000 shillings down the toilet. That caused an awful lot of controversy when that film came out in late 90s Europe, as I'm sure you can understand. Yep. But it's, again, it's such an engaged film. It's not going to be for everybody, and we have to stress, these are thoroughly miserable films. But they are unique for the reasons I've said. The fact that he would show a film where you know, where a family all of a sudden decides to commit suicide, and you see them taking pills, you see them giving a drink to the child with the pills in it, you see everything. Now, it makes me realise how little we actually see in other films that we have to go back to 1989, uh, Hanukkah's first feature film, to see stuff of this ilk, Paul. Mm. Even now, it still surprises me, because I I, I revisited a couple of them in preparation to do this, because I haven't seen them for four or five years. Incredible. Mm. I... I, I think that's fascinating, and, and I love the idea that, it, that, he, that he does. He just shows it because I think what he's saying is two things: is and, and this is what makes him different. He doesn't come up with some psycho babble rationale, which is the Hollywood favourite. Give him a reason that some psycho babble drivel. And this comes back to the quote at the beginning: yeah, anti Hollywood, no resolution. There is no resolution for this family. It just happens. But equally, the reason it happens is because we're alive. And people do these things Absolutely. who are alive, and so it's both. It explains it totally, without explaining explaining it at all, and without reverting to kind of like uh, clumsy rationale that is ad hoc, random, and as likely to be untrue as it is true. Which is what you get in 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 kind of English speaking. Uh, films by and large and and it is quite refreshing to see a film where nothing is explained yet you if you engage with it it's completely explicable explainable as being why it is and yeah. I, and there's very few directors that can achieve that and he he knew very little about this family from the newspaper from the newspaper article that he read which gave him the inspiration to to direct the film about this particular family yeah. because he doesn't know about it we don't know about it. Yep. And instead, whilst everybody else would make shit up, as we've said, he just he did as much as he knew, mm. which he presented the fact that they had a lot of money, they had a good jobs, she went to a good school, and then all of a sudden, one of them's crying in a car wash, and then half an hour later, they're all swallowing pills. It's incredibly... <laughs> it, it's, it, is, it is what it is, and that's the, that's the exact point. And you mentioned that the ambiguity mixed with telling facts along with you also, you know, bring your own interpretation of things, with what he's telling you. The first masterpiece of Michael Haneke's collection for me is Benny's video. Mm. Now, but I, I want to say as little about this as possible, because for full impact, you need to go into it completely bare. What I will say about Benny's video is that, coming back to what I said about the films being made by people in that country, but also what's happening around you at the point the film's been made, this was made in 1992, which was coincides with the rise of MTV, mm-hmm. uh, pornography and VHS. And in fact, generally speaking, quite a war-ridden time, wasn't it, in the 90s? Indeed. All sorts of conflicts all over the world. And news became more and more about showing blooded footage. And um, not that far from Austria either. Indeed you know, Literally not. just across the border. You had all the conflicts going on there. And Benny's video is essentially something that Haneke, again, brings a lot into a lot of his films. The horror of personality which is a subgenre of horror films, whereby you have got, on the surface, not abhorrently evil people, normal-looking people. For example, the family in the same continent, they've, all got, they've got money, they've got a nice house, there's nothing on the surface. They're all nice-looking people, etc. Benny is exactly the same. He's a, t- he's a young minor, 13, 14. He's in a choir. He's intelligent. He's good at maths. Mm. He's popular. The family's got a lot of money. They live in a nice apartment and all the rest of it. But his mind gets warped by the VHS. Mm, mm. He's obsessed with it. He's got a setup in his room where he films what happens outside. That's all I'm going to say on Benny's video. What, what, what I will say on it, though, is that you have to decide at all times whether Benny is a good person or a bad person. Now, this wasn't based on fact, but he still manages to give you a little bit of information for you to follow, 
The rest is up to you with what you're presented. Mm. And it is such an engaging film. This is probably my, in my top three of Hanukkah's entire list, Benny's video. In fact, I would even... I would recommend this to watch first. Mm. And if you, if you can handle what this film throws at you, you can live with the one before, and you can certainly live with the one that would come after, the few that come after this. Absolutely. He would then move on to do another film based on truth, which is 71 Fragments of a Chronology of Chance. Now, this is based on a real-life... Again, this comes back to something you brilliantly made earlier. Human beings don't have to have a rationale to do bad things. They are humans, and therefore they will do bad things. Whereas Benny's video, the, 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 the rationale was the rise of MTV, VHS, pornography, violence on the news, and all that, which has an effect on Benny. This is literally a totally random bank killing that happened in Vienna. And the 71 fragments relate to the fact that lots and lots of different characters intertwine, and they all meet at the bank, and they all get killed by this stranger. Now, again, this comes back to the mundaneness as well. Because I think that, I believe one of them is a Romanian immigrant yeah. living in Vienna. And a lot of them are all different caste system things, job, different jobs, different kind of people. But the guy who actually ends up doing the killing, he's, a, he's, he's the most ordinary guy you could possibly imagine. And he shows the, 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 the mundanity of his life by one of probably Hanukkah's most famous scenes, Paul. And that is the table tennis scene. And he talks about this quite, with, with quite, quite a lot of proudness, really. That scene represents Michael Haneke to a T. It's literally the the future killer playing against a ping a ping pong machine that spits balls out to him, and he hits them back over the table to nobody, just playing by himself. And I think that scene goes on for about eight minutes, just him returning ping pong balls back and forth, back and forth. That is Michael Haneke. Mm. Now he thinks, he even says, maybe that scene went on a bit too long. But you are watching this, expecting something to happen. This has to mean something, doesn't it? Mm. It doesn't. Mm. It's normal. It's life. This is a normal guy hitting balls on a ping pong table. And that scene represents his entire career. Mm. And he will go on to make some slightly less good ones, slightly better ones, one or two masterpieces. That's Michael Haneke. So I would probably say that's one of his better early ones as well Simple Fragments because it has it's the typical Hanukkah template so that there's that one and just be, just to finish off this part one of Michael Hanukkah's career is a TV movie that I actually are able to you are able to get your hands on and it's Kafka's legendary long lost unfinished novel that goes by the name of The Castle have you seen The Castle? I haven't it's over two hours long and you know it's an unfinished novel because it just ends. <laughs> but it's it's honestly, I would also say this is one of his better ones. If we have seen, God know how many novels in films. Yeah. Hollywood loves taking novels. It has its own section on the bloody Oscar ceremony for one thing. Yeah. Best you know adapted screenplay. Um, this is an incomplete novel, and it's so brilliantly made. Considering that it's not finished, it, you, you you have to find out what happens. So you go onto the internet trying to find out what happens, and you can't because there were never any plans. He literally Kafka died whilst he was writing the novel, <laughs> and apparently there were a few hidden notes hidden about somewhere that kind of revealed that the lead character dies. Would that be a surprise? Not really, because it's a Hanukkah film. But the interesting thing about the castle is that uh, the name of the gentleman from the Lives of Others, Ulrich Moa. Mm-hmm. He's worked with Michael Haneke a few times. Good actor. Yep. He's worked with uh, Haneke quite a few times. He's brilliant in this. And it's essentially a film about a land surveyor who arrives at a small snowy village and local authorities refuse to allow him to advance to the nearby castle. And increasingly complicated bureaucratic obstacles arise. So this is not your typical Haneke subject, but it's not his story. But this is where you can actually appreciate Haneke as a director. It's a fully miserable film. <laughs> There's not a lot of colour in it. But he gets the best out of very, very good actors. He also gets the best out of very, very good material from other people as well. Mm. So not only can he write stuff and direct things and produce things, he can take other people's material as well. And all these four films I mentioned today from Michael Haneke, I would recommend absolutely every single one of them. Various different reasons. They are all slightly different, mm. but they're all... 
like all all great directors, there's a common thread here. Well, and they've led him up to being the director he is now. And I think, you know, it's like you said, there's bits of, 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 of the later, greater movies in all of them. And you can see how he's developed and he's learned uh, both the storytelling or anti-storytelling as well as, yeah, as, as well as kind of like the use of camera, how long a shot needs to be to get the point he's making. Not for us to enjoy it, which we do at the same time, but like like the table tennis scene. In all of his other films, there are lengthy scenes, yeah. but they're perfectly timed. And you've got to make an eight-minute one that you think probably should have been five minutes fifty yeah. to, to, to do that. And that, that's, that's nice to see technology, not technology, a, a kind of technique that you learn and perfect throughout. So, absolutely. And, and, and I, I want to go and look at these, because I think, you know, reading about them, and it, and it is... Would you like my essential Hanukkah box set? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Bring it around. I will. Bring it on. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but it's, a, as a final point, you may think, oh, well, of course he's going to make mistakes and all the rest of it, and, and obviously do better ones. There are some ones later on that I don't like as much as his early ones. So it's not necessarily just the automatic, like, his later ones are the better ones. Are, you'll see what you think of these when you watch them, these four. But... The important point to make is that he came from the theatre. Yeah. His father was a theatre background. He came from a theatre background. He, he did some TV, very, very small TV things, including some Liverpool Liverpool Football Club thing, I think. Um, but some other odd things. So he is quite an old man. 72, as we said. He didn't start filmmaking until 1989, until his 50s, mm. early 50s. So it is this strange thing of this guy with a theatre background who did grow up in the maths. 40s? No. 50s? Yeah. So he grew up in the 50s just after all the war things when theatre was st- still felt prevalence but obviously was starting to lose way towards what would become, you know, silent movies and the rest of you know, Hollywood. Hollywood's just gnashing its teeth on a bone then. So to, to get his perspective from what he's doing and his craft... The fact that he does kind of go up and down, his techniques that he's brought from the theatre, the fact that he can, he can get the best out of all the actors. And quite interestingly enough, we hear all directors all the time saying, I thought of that film for that person. I wrote this film for that actor. Mm. And then when you actually watch the film, it could have been any actor. Yeah, They say it because the casting director hired the actor. Mm. Hanukkah actually does this. He actually chooses films for the actors, mm. as we were just when we call, probably when we move on to, well, for parts two and three. Mm. That's particularly the case with the certain actresses that he likes to work for, yeah. and what they bring to the film, and what he gets the best out of them as well. Well, um, let me just add a couple of things. I think what's interesting is is he he's a European, he's an Austrian, and he's a European. So, for example, all of his films they're not all in German. Well, he, he's he, fluent he in moved. French, German, and Austrian. Exactly. Yeah. And equally, I think thinking about what you've just been saying and how you've described it. I think the key thing is is, is his Austrianness, and when he Absolutely. grew up, he grew up in an era post-war. He's very development, and actually, Austria was a problematic thing because they're not the good guys, but they're not the bad guys, no, no. and it's that in the middle. And in a way, that permeates all his films. Does his films? So it's not about whether you're the good guy or the bad guy. It just is. And I think that that's about being an Austrian, who who a lot of them supported the Nazis, and you know, and fundamentally, and oh, and turncoated as well. Yeah, they? absolutely. Yeah. So, but again, but they're not the bad guys. No, no. But equally, they're not the good guys who fought it and rebelled against it. And that actually is about that. Almost the essence of the people in his films is about they're not the good guys and they're not the bad guys. It just is, and I think he's great. And I think I'm I'm looking forward to doing part two and part three of this. Indeed. And uh, I look forward to sharing the part one with you. Indeed. I'll be interested what you think of them. Anyway, that'll do for episode 21. Thank you very much. We'll be back in a few weeks for more films, some news, and some looking back. So we'll see you then. (laughs) 